I was surprised that many of you came back after last week, and I'm talking about the wrath of God and how sinful and stinky you all are, and then you still came back. I thought a lot of you guys would be like, I'm going to go somewhere where the pastor loves me, right? I'm going to check out one of those kind of churches, but oh, the utter cruelty, the utter cruelty of someone who claims to love you but won't tell you the truth. We said last week, it's the good, loving doctor that tells you the exact diagnosis that you have, the the, the cancer, and then the severity of what you have, because it's only when you understand the depth of your diagnosis and your problem that you're going to embrace and accept, believe, whatever remedy is being offered to you. And we said that's what Paul's doing here, is he's writing this letter to the churches in Rome, that, that Paul, is, he, he's, he's never been to Rome before, so he's introducing himself and the message, the good news, the gospel that God has given him to take to the world. And, he said, and I'm so thankful he did because we have the most, most systematic layout of the gospel that is ever given to us in the New Testament because of that. And what he said to this church, these churches, these house churches, he said, I love you enough to tell you the whole gospel. The whole gospel. He says, I'm not just going to give you some sugar-coated version that you, can, that you like, right? To put Jesus sprinkles on your life to make it taste better. He says, I've got to tell you the whole truth, that you are a lost sinner, condemned to die. And there's only one remedy, and that's Jesus. And we see where Paul goes here in his outline. Where he introduced himself, the theme, the righteousness of God revealed from heaven through faith. And then he's going to go in these, next, these first three chapters, he's going to talk about sin. He says, we've got to address the bad news before we can get to the good news. We've got to address your sin before you'll ever accept and embrace your Savior. And so this is where he takes us. And we said that last week, we said Paul is taking us into the courtroom of the universe. The courtroom of the universe where God is the judge, where man is the one on trial before him. And we saw there's going to be four main culprits in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And last week, we looked at the second half of chapter 1, we saw the heathen. And we saw the witness that came before to testify against the heathen was creation. He said, he has seen what the things that God has made, the Greek word for that was poema, which is our word poem. We said creation is God's poem. And that they could clearly see and understand God's eternal power, his divine nature. They had no excuse. They knew enough about God to respond rightly, but they didn't. That mankind rejected God and actually made himself God of his own universe. And that, that, that in God's response to that, in, in them not choosing God, he gave them up. He gave them over to their sinful desires leading to a hell of their own design. They lived in open rebellion, indulging in their base desires. It's an ugly, bleak picture of sinful humanity. And and, and this week, he's going to turn the corner, and he's going to talk about the moralist. Now, what do we mean when we say the moralist? I remember as a kid, I was the oldest of three, otherwise known as the behaved one, right? And I remember when my younger two siblings, the one that dis- disobeyed from time to time, they would get disciplined, and I loved being the one that was good and egging my parents on over their shoulders. Yeah, get them. Yeah, and, and you don't even know what they're doing when they're not, when, you're, when you got your back turned toward them, she stuck her tongue out at you. They actually do that all the time, right? So many spankings should be coming their way, right? And here I am egging them on, but you know what my parents would do? they totally would turn on me. Like, they'd turn around and go, oh, so you mean you've never done that before? You've never disobeyed me? You've never stuck your tongue out at me before? And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Now I'm the one in trouble? 
Like, I, I thought we were in this together. Let's not lose sight of the real enemy, the real bad guys here, right? <laughs> what was the lesson? Mind your own business, Frankino, right? That was, that was the lesson I took from that. And here's Paul. He has this group of heathens that he's really given the business to. And now he imagines there's these people over his shoulder, these, these good people, the moralists. And they're going, yeah, Paul, get him. They are so wicked. Throw the book at them. Those scallywags, they deserve hell. And Paul, just like my parents, he turns over his shoulder and he goes, I'm glad you think that they deserve punishment. Now let's talk about you for a minute. Let's talk about you for a minute. We've seen that Paul has addressed God's wrath on the heathen, on the vile sinner who lives in open rebellion. But today we want to ask the question, what about Mr. Nice Guy? Right? What, what about the good guy? What about the guy that, that helps old ladies across the street and carries their groceries? He pays his taxes. He holds doors for neighbors. Right? Like he's a good He's a good guy. He doesn't hurt anybody. You look at his court view record, there's nothing there. Nothing. Like, obviously, he doesn't murder, but he doesn't even have a speeding ticket. I mean, who drives through Sterling, the four-lane section of Sterling, and actually does 45? Come on. You're lying. You're lying to me. Yeah, Jacob does. That's actually true. He's going to get pulled over for going too slow one of these days. Does Mr. Nice Guy get God's wrath too? Like, surely he's an upstanding citizen. He's not hurting anybody. Why should he be condemned to hell for eternity? That's not fair. Now, who is the moralist? Well, the heathen in chapter 1, we see they're the one that approves of evil. We said they applaud others who do these vile things. We're going to see today the moralist, he's the guy who disapproves of these things. And he holds these rules. He says, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls who do, right? He has this list of morals, and he, he thinks he's better than, than others. And if the heathen, last week we compared him to the prodigal son. If the heathen is the prodigal son, then in chapter 2, the moralist is the older brother. He's the older brother. You remember the story, the prodigal ditches his dad, he blows his inheritance in Vegas, and then when he comes back, the older brother, he's sitting there going, wait a second, you're just going to accept him? And you're going to be nicer to him than you ever have to me? I never left you. I stayed by your side the whole time. I obeyed you. I did my chores. I was the good son. It's just like the pastor's kids. They always say, the pastor's kids go one of two ways. Okay? And I was a pastor's kid, so I know this. There's the, the option A. There's the, the rebel, Right? tatted up, wearing leather, chain smoking in the baptismal, right? You've got, you got that, the, the, the rebel, pastor's kid, and then you've got the, the good son, right? The one that toes the line, the straight-laced choir boy, leaning over pastor daddy's shoulder, going, yeah, my, my rebel brother, he deserves, he deserves punishment, right? He's not as good as, as I am. But what Paul's going to do today is he's going to show us three reasons why the good guy is just as condemned, just as guilty, just as deserving of God's wrath as the rebel. Three reasons. Chapter 2, 1 through 16. First reason, moral, the moralist is condemned by his own judgment. You can follow along. Uh, ESV version will be up on the screen. Notes to follow along, fill in the blanks there, are in your bulletin. Moralist is condemned by his own judgment. Look at number one. Brilliant argument by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in light of everything we just talked about in chapter one, this, the sin of man, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Now, just like the heathen, he says the moralist is without excuse, Right? Spoiler alert. Right out of the gates. The moralist is condemned too. The moralist has no excuse either. 
Now, now who is the moralist? Some say this, that he's talking to the Jews, that he shifted the corner from chapter 1 Gentile and now he's talking Jew. I don't really think he's specifically addressing the Jews until verse 17. We'll look at that next week. Some think he's just talking to the moral Gentiles, those who claim to hold some kind of a moral rigor. Either way, what we know here, who he is talking to, he says, every one of you who judges, guess who that is? That's everyone, right? We can all apply this to ourselves. We all cast judgment in one form or another. And, and what he says here, he says, you who judge, and the word he uses here is the Greek word krino. The word krino. Now, now, this word doesn't necessarily mean that you condemn somebody when you judge them. You're not running around slapping fail stickers on people's forehead. You go to hell, and you go to hell, and you really go to hell, right? It, it, all, the word here, the Greek word, it means to separate or distinguish. To separate or, or distinguish, or to put it another way, to exercise your faculty of moral discrimination. Now, that's a mouthful, so let's, let's talk about this. So you go to shortstop. I'm not calling it Big John's, right? Shortstop to me. It's always been short. Always be, I'm getting, we're, we're, all right. You go to shortstop, and there's a guy who steals Sour Patch Kids. Can't blame him, because they're awesome, but you've got to pay for them. So he steals the Sour Patch Kids, and I go, that is wrong right? I point out his burglary is wrong. It's not right of him. Now, that's judging, right? That judgment is the ability to distinguish or separate. So I can namely, I can make good piles and, and, and bad piles, right piles and wrong piles. And what he says here, though, he says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. On passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Now, what he's not saying is that this man is in trouble because he's making some kind of a judgment, even on someone else. You see, we live in an outrage culture today, don't we? We, we live, in, especially on social media, where everyone is just offended by everything. Like, you say something, and you've offended, like, eight special interest groups somehow, right? Every word can be taken and wrong. And, 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 and you can't say anything that's right or wrong. In fact, we're not even allowed to, to say that there is a right or wrong anymore. Listen, the ability to distinguish that something's right or something's wrong, something's good or something's evil, something's godly or something's ungodly, that is a gift from God. Imagine if we didn't have the ability to know what's right and what's wrong. It's not hard to imagine in our culture today, is it, as we continue to run from God and our consciences become seared, but that's another message. No, he's not condemning them for making a judgment. Look at what he says. Here's why. The because we're looking for these words. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The reason you condemn yourself in judging them is not because you're wrong about them, but because you do the same blooming things that they do. So if they deserve punishment, you deserve punishment. Don't you see that? You remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Here's a guy who has a bunch of wives. What is he thinking? And then he goes over, and that's not enough for him. And there's this guy, Uriah, who has one wife, a very pretty wife. And David takes her, and he sleeps with her. And then to cover it up, he has Uriah oft. And this man of God, he comes to him named Nathan, and he tells him this story to David. And I love the way he approaches David. He goes, there's this story about this rich man, and he had a ton of sheep. Okay? Now, in, back in those days, wealth was indicated not by money, but by sheep. So you could say, not that he was flossing, but that he was flocking. I know, I know, I know, I know. That was bad. All right, let's just keep, let's pretend like that didn't happen. Now, he goes, so here's this rich man with all these sheep. Now, there's this one man, this one poor man, and he's only got one little sheep, and they love this sheep. He's part of the family. He says, he even crawls into bed with him at night, which is disgusting, but that's what he did. So, he says, here's, here's what happens. 
is when a visitor comes to visit the rich man, instead of, and it was, it was customary at the time to, to kill one of your sheep and to prepare it for the visitor, instead of taking one of the, the sheep from his huge flock, he goes over to the poor man, takes Mary's little lamb, and makes lamb chops for his visitor. And David, he gets ticked off and he stands up and he's like, he's like, man, you should kill that guy. He goes, if you could kill him four times, you should do that. Like, that's terrible. And I love Nathan's response. He looks at him like, are you serious, man? You're that man. Like, this story is about you. David is the Romans 2 moralist here, where he is judged rightly, like he got the moral correct. But what he doesn't see is that he is guilty of the exact same thing as this rich shepherd. And this is what we call being a hypocrite. You know, this, Jesus talked to the Pharisees. You got, you got a log in your eye, and you're talking about somebody else's speck. The, hypocr- the word hypocrite, it comes from the Greek word Hippocrates. And it has two different words, hypo meaning under, and krino. We just talked about that word. It's the word judge, to distinguish or to, to separate. It's this really cool word. They used it for actors because the Greeks, when they would act, they would, tell, they would wear these huge masks. So they're telling a story, making a judgment from under the mask. That's where the idea comes from. And so a hypocrite was somebody who would make a judgment from behind a mask. In other words, they're pretending to be something that they're not. And, and Jesus, this is why he calls the Pharisees hypocrites in Matthew 23. He says, you're actors, you're fakes, you're posers. And in Matthew 23, I love the image he uses. It's a whitewashed tomb. He says, on the outside, you're very pretty. And you've painted yourself up to look very ornate. But on the inside, he says, you're dead. You're a dirty sinner pretending to be something that you're, you're not. And they were calling other people out on their junk when they had done the exact same thing. This is what I call the Christian mullet, all right? So (laughs) follow me here, okay? I know, I know, you're good looking. So this is righteous in the front, right? And he's very sinful in the back, right? (laughs) That's the, so there you have it, there you have it. Let's Let's get that guy off the screen, off the screen, off the screen. Dan, where did things go? You turn your back for 10 years. All right. So this is, this is what Paul is saying to the moralist in verse 1. He goes, you judge the heathens, but he goes, you do, you practice the very same things. The very same things. And you say, well, wait a second. No, 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 not the same things. Not the same things. Like the, the prodigal is way worse than the older brother, Right? I mean, the older brother was doing his chores. The older brother stayed at home and obeyed. The prodigal, he blew all of his money. He, he, was, he was seeing prostitutes. He was, he was doing drugs. Like, that was way worse than what the older brother was doing, right? No way that you could give them equal punishment, equal wrath. Maybe, maybe your story is, is a little bit more like mine. I was the good one, the angel, right? The, the pastor's son that was good. And I grew up, okay, all the ribbons that a cubby could get right? I got all this jewels that a Sparky, I even got Sparky himself, I was so great, right? And I was, I was saying my memory verses, I was in line, man. And then as a youth, uh, youth group, I was youth group leader. Then I came back as an intern. I taught the youth group, taught the children's churches. I went to every missions trip available, right? I was a good guy. I was in church every Sunday. 
I never knew drugs. I didn't even know what drugs looked like. <laughs> like I, was, I, never did, I never drank alcohol. I didn't sleep around. And I deserve just as much punishment as, as the, the dude in, down at Wildwood? But you take a look under my mask. You take a look under my mask. And I was the Romans 1 rebel. Maybe I wasn't sleeping around. But since the age of 12, I had been steeped in pornography. What did Jesus say? He said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. In God's eyes, God's standard, no better. And when you got down to the heart of it, and I started doing the checklist of Romans 1, maybe I was more dressed up on the outside, but had the same heart issues as the most vile sinner on the planet. I mean, you go through this checklist we looked at last week. Was I envious? Bet I was. Did I love people well? No. No, not deep down inside. I was number one. I was boastful. I was, I was arrogant. A gossip, right? Quarreling. My tongue got me in more trouble than you could ever imagine. Probably not hard for you to imagine. It looked great on the outside to a lot of people, but inside, this hypocrite had the exact same heart, the same inability to worship God rightly, to love other people well in a genuine way. Just as guilty as the man on death row. And so what he says is my judgment of others. When I looked at other people and said, man, they are awful. Like, I can't stand them. You ever notice that you, the people you can't stand the most are actually the people you're most alike? <laughs> and, and he said, the very people you're judging in your heart, you're actually, you got three fingers pointing back at you, buddy, and you're just as, as sinful as they are and just as deserving of God's wrath as, as they are. Because as we'll see in number two, God judges according to his take on reality, his standard of holiness and truth, not mine. We're, we're, we're judged, number two, by our own works. The moralist is judged by his own works. Look at verse two. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God's judgment rightly falls. Number one, because he's the right judge. I can't rightly judge people because I don't rightly see everything. I can't always rightly distinguish right from wrong. But God is the right judge as creator. He's the one we're accountable to. He's the judge at the end of all time. And he rightly judges because God is a just God. He's a right God. Every decision he always makes is the good one. It's the right one. It's the best one. And so he says God one day will judge and he will judge rightly. So that leaves two options for this moralist. Number one, verse three, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He goes, think about this for a second. You think God's going to be like, oh, I like this guy. Look at all his sparky jewels. Come on in. He goes, you're delusional. You have false reasoning here. You, you think you're going to escape God's judgment somehow? You do the exact same thing. Or maybe the other, the, other, the other option for him was, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Is maybe you presume, or the word here is to despise, to think down on God's kindness, God's patience. So there's a lot of people who think, man, well, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, but there's a lot of sinners who've been getting away with a lot of sin ever since. And, and there's no punishment coming. Maybe there's no consequence for these behaviors. Maybe God's just a really nice, kind God. So either you're delusional, 
he says, and you don't realize that you're doing the same things that you're judging others for, thereby you're going to get the same judgment as the other people, or you say, God's cool with it. Look how nice he is. But either way, whatever, whatever your line of reasoning is, he goes, here's the sobering truth, verse 5, but, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See what he's saying here. God is coming. He's being patient. He's being kind. But this is why. I love Second Peter. He says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. It's not like, oh, I've got a lot of things to do before I get to coming back and judging earth, right? No, he says, no, he's being patient for your sake. Why? He does not want anyone. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Do you hear what he's saying here? The reason that God is being patient, the reason he is being kind, is he wants more people to repent. We talked last week about the Amdu people. They are weeks or months away from hearing the gospel for the first time. He says, I want them to come to know me first. I'm giving time for more people to come to know me before I come back and judge the world. This is why I'm being patient. And listen, if God's kindness, if God's patience isn't leading us to repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, he says you are dripping drops of judgment into the bowl of wrath. And one day, the, the, the dam will break and, and, and the full fury of his wrath will come. And then he turns to verse 6. And, and you have to ask yourself here, he starts talking these verses, is, is, is Paul preaching a works salvation here? Is he preaching that you actually, if you're good enough, God will, he'll reward you, he'll save you. So, so look at this as, as we read these five verses. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. Well-doing. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God doesn't play favorites. He has one standard. It's the same standard for everybody. He says he judges you according to what you've done, your works. And wait a second, I didn't think we were saved by our, our works. We always have to remember the context. What's the context here? If we look in our, in our, in our outline... Paul's point here is to show us our sin, to show how everyone is guilty before this perfect, holy judge, God himself. And what he's doing, as he's unpacking here, he's showing us God will judge rightly. He will judge rightly, which is good to know, because when we have to deal with things like, do babies go to heaven? What about the specially abled? What about these unique situations that we can't work out with our own human brains? We know God is going to do the right thing, the just thing. The best thing, trust him to be the judge. But we're going to see in chapter 3, and there is no one who does good. So, so if, if we're going to only be saved, or possibly be saved by our works, that's for no one. Because there's no one who does good. He says there's no one who, who seeks for God on their own. So, so how can we do works? How can we please God? Well, in Romans, we're going to see as he walks down this road, there's only one way to receive reward. There's only one way to please God. 
And when Jesus, he was confronted by a group of people once who asked him a very similar question. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, we want to do the right thing. We want to be judged well. We want to be rewarded. We don't want his wrath. We don't want his punishment. So what works do we do? This is what Jesus said in response. He says, here's the works that you're required to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him whom he has sent. We cannot do one pure good work on our own that will please God. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But by faith, he gives you a whole list of people in the Old Testament who did great things for God, who would be rewarded by God. So we can do good works, and God will judge those works, but the only way we can do a work that's acceptable to God is by faith in Jesus, because Jesus is the only good person on the planet. And I get the life of Jesus in me, and Jesus does his good works through me. God is going to judge by this standard, by our works. And the only way we can do good works is through the person of Jesus. So the moralist is condemned, number one, by judging other people's sinful works, because number two, he does the same sinful things that he was judging other people for. And God's going to judge us by what we've done. Number three, the moralist is condemned by his own conscience. Now this gets a little thick, so follow me with verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's he talking about? Remember, he's talking to two main groups of people here. He's talking to the Gentile and the Jew. So the Gentile, the non-Jew, they're the ones without the law. We're not given the law. The Jew is the one who was put under the law. He says the Jew's going to be judged according to the law, but, but not, not, not the Gentile. Now, now what's he saying here? Is, is God have a double standard? Well, no, he's the right judge. He has one standard, but he has two different methods here that he's talking about. See, the, the Jewish people, they were given the law of Moses. They were given 613 commands, and God said, you, you must obey these. If you want to be right in my, in my sight, you would have to keep all of these 613 commands perfectly. And what he says here in verse 13, he says, it's not just the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So it's not just that you have the law carrying it around in your pocket, you actually would have to keep this law. And the Jews do not, and therefore they are guilty before God. And, but he says, when the Gentile sins, they are violating the exact same holy, righteous standard of God, even though they don't have the law. Look, look, he explains this in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So he says the Gentiles, remember the non-Jewish people, anybody in this room today who was, is not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Because the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, were never under the law. We were never given the law of Moses. But he says, by nature, we do what the law requires. Now, what's he mean by that? What's, what's he trying to say there? Let's, let's unpack that. So we talked about our, our Sour Patch thief earlier from Shortstop, right? So if on the way out, you run into him and you're like, hey, you're stealing. He doesn't go, oh, that was wrong? Okay, I thought we could just take things from the store if we want. I thought payment was optional right? I thought that was the convenience and convenience store, that I could just take what I want, and if I could pay, great, if not, no. Like, the guy knows what he's doing is wrong, right? Now, even if this guy has never read the Bible, even if he never turned chapter and verse to Exodus 20 and saw God's law, thou shall not steal, he intuitively knows that's wrong. You talk to any toddler on the planet, and they intuitively know you cannot steal an inflatable baseball from your sister, right? That's wrong. No one had to teach them that. They, they know that that doesn't belong to them. And we talked about the Omdu people last week that my friends are, are, are taking, taking the gospel to right now. 
the, the, every, any remote tribal group on the planet has a list of taboos. They know there are certain things that are, that are, are wrong. And, and, and almost without exception, they, they line up to God's standard to not kill somebody else. Incest, you know, adultery, things like that, that they intuitively know these things are not right. And this ability to determine right from wrong, remember to distinguish, to judge back from verse 1, this comes from our God-given conscience. The conscience. The word conscience, con, with, science, knowledge. So with knowledge. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, gave them the ability to distinguish between good and evil. Now, does that mean we know everything that's good and everything that's wrong? No. We said as an, last week, as an adult, I know more morally than I knew as a three-year-old. We talked about light level and the way that that can be raised. But, but here's the truth. It says in verse 13, verse 15, excuse me, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, so here, here's what he's saying here. Here's what our conscience does. Okay, you remember Jiminy Cricket? Always let your conscience be your guide. He says that there's this small voice that as you're about to do something, either goes, bing, good choice, or eh, bad choice, right? A little light that goes off. Tells you, this is right, this is wrong. And what he's saying is that we all have a conscience. Now, it's not a perfect conscience, and we can sear our conscience, right? But we, we intuitively know certain things are right or wrong. And, and here's what he's saying. God, God will judge every person by the standard they have, not by the standard they don't have. So, so in other words, the Jewish people who had the law, he says, you're going to be judged according to those 613 rules. Did you keep them or not? Now, now, the people we talked about, the Omdu people, who did not have the law, what did he give them? He gave them God's poem. He gave them the nature of God's, God's divine nature and eternal power. And he says, you didn't even respond to that. You didn't live up to, to that standard that you knew. You didn't thank God for creation. You didn't honor him as God. And all of us, we, we all have a conscience. And what he's saying is, none of you live up to even the own standards of your conscience. It's like, could anybody in the room today honestly say that you've always obeyed your conscience. Every time you said, I know that's wrong, you said, I'm not going to do it. Perfectly, every single time. No, of course not. Have we done that in one given day, let alone our whole lifetime? And Paul, what he does is he takes this moralist into the courtroom, and he goes right to his heart, and he takes his conscience, and he condemns him by his own, this is brilliant, takes his own conscience, says, you don't even live up to the standard you have, let alone God's standard. And you're judging other people for doing wrong, but there's three fingers pointing back at you. You are no better, just as condemned. This is brilliant, and this is devastating. But he ends on a grace note, a gospel note in verse 16. I want us to see this, and then we'll be done. Verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He says there's a day coming where there's one true judge. In verse 1, he started out with man as the judge, you who judge others. But in verse 16, he ends with Jesus as the judge, the one right judge on his throne. And what he says here is Jesus judges the secrets of men. In other words, we can pull the wool over somebody else's eyes. We can be the hypocrite. We can play others as the fool. So you can fool all of us. You can be in church every Sunday. You can make it look like your life is together. You can post Facebook posts of Bible verses and sunsets and how much you love your spouse, right? We can present very, very well. 
You can pull one over on me. You can pull one over on the person that you're sitting next to. But we cannot pull one over on Jesus. He says, one day Jesus will judge the secrets of man. He knows your heart. He knows your true works. That's the standard he's going to judge by. He knows it all. And he will judge rightly. And that should terrify me to my core. Now, Paul calls this, he says, according to my gospel. Gospel means good news. How is that good news? How is it good news that Jesus knows my secrets and will judge me accordingly? That's bad news. That's really bad news. Because I know my secrets. But the good in the good news is that Jesus, he serves not only as judge on that final day. He will be the judge. But he also, and this is so good, he'll take, he'll take off that weird white wig and he'll come over to where I'm standing as the perpetrator. And he actually stands where I'm standing, and he says, on the cross, I showed myself not just as judge, but that I would take your place as the judged. That Jesus said, I will absorb your wrath, my wrath on you. I will take the punishment for every sin that you have ever committed. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He goes, if you want to know how to escape this judgment that is coming and pass from death to life, there's, there's one way. There's one way. See, that day, every sin will be judged. He's the right judge, the just judge. The right judge judges every sin. So he says there's this one dividing line. Is one dividing line, and that you can either let Jesus take the wrath for you, or you can take the wrath yourself. And whether it's the rebellious heathen of chapter one or the hypocritical moralist of chapter two, the judgment and wrath is the same. So today, while it is still today, this is a message of deliverance. Because there's a righteousness that's being revealed in Jesus where we can have our sins judged on him. The judge can become the judged for us. But on that final day, the great white throne of judgment, when Jesus comes to reveal his righteousness in his judgment, this will be a message of destruction. So it's up to us to hear this as a message of deliverance or a message of destruction. Let's pray. Father, we can fool each other, but we can't fool you. You see, you, you knit me in my mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. You know me, and you know my sin. You know my sin better than I know my sin. And Lord, even those of us who grew up in church playing the game or, or, or grew up looking on the outside like everything was good, we know that deep down our conscience tells us that we do not live up to the, even our own conscience's standard, let alone your holy standard of perfection. God, we are guilty before you and our own judgment of other people is witness to that, as Paul laid out today in chapter 2. So may we not come as the self-righteous. May we not come as the ones who think we can pull it all together by working harder, by going to church more, by helping more old ladies across the street. But to know we have one hope, one righteousness, and that is the person of Jesus. May we fall on, on his cross, bow at his feet, and see this gospel, the bad news that we're sinners, but the good news that there's a Savior, and we would worship Jesus, rightly. May we repent of our sin 
and turn to the lover of our souls and find eternal life to be passed from judgment as Jesus absorbs the wrath for us and that we would sing praises to King Jesus and it's a beautiful wrath-absorbing name that we pray. Amen.